Well, good morning, church. I want to start today by drawing attention to something that uh, every single one of us in this room actually has in common. Do you know that? We all have something in common. And that is, we love that moment when a problem seems absolutely impossible to solve. So exactly at that moment, then the only solution comes in, boom, and solves it, right? We love that moment. That gets us excited. That's the plot line of every movie, right? Every thriller, every action movie, sports, a Hail Mary as time expires, a buzzer beater. That's, that's the sort of thing that like sporting lore is built on. People talk about that in cities for a long time. Maybe something a little bit more practical, close to home, when you are attempting to get all of your grocery bags inside in just one trip, and it seems impossible. Because you've got one left, and you're like, man, that's heavy. How am I going to do this? But at that moment, you realize, if I just shift this one over to my arm, I can get it and get the door down, and we're good to go, right? We get excited about that. We celebrate these situations, and actually, the bigger the problem and the potential for despair and for loss, the more joy and relief that we experience when the solution comes, and it just seems too good to be true, right? So, so the bigger this, the bigger that. So what I want you to do then is take that feeling, multiply it by about a thousand, and that's Isaiah 43 today. Because Isaiah 43 deals with the most impossible problem, and that's our sin. It recognizes that to solve that impossible problem, we need an even greater solution, the only solution that could possibly solve it. So Israel had a problem. We have a problem. And so the question that we will ask today, the question that's prompted before Isaiah 43 and answered in Isaiah 43 is this. Who can save us? Who can save us? That is the question that Isaiah 43 answers. Who can save us? So, How exactly does Isaiah 43 answer that question? Well, first, we have to give the bad news. Okay, so step one in in the answer to this question is the reality that we can't. The solution's not us. Who can save us? We can't. We can't. So what we actually need to do is, is we need to back up a little bit because Isaiah 43 actually continues a thought that was happening at the end of Isaiah 42. So it's not as easy to just break it up just like this. So especially at the the very end of Isaiah 42, verses 18 through 25, if you recall, Pastor Mark led us last week to see that Isaiah 42 paints a picture of Israel's need, right? They have a need. We have a need. And if you recall, this section And Isaiah is addressed to a people in exile. So they were experiencing the consequences of their sin. They saw their real need. That's the setting heading into Isaiah 43. Also, we're introduced to God's servant. So there's a a character, the servant. And he was supposed to bring God's justice to the nations. And that was supposed to be Israel. That was Israel's job. But we see a disconnect between what the servant was supposed to do and what they actually did. So look again with me at Isaiah 42, starting in verse 18. 
Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servants? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? So you see, they were supposed to be the ones who opened the blind eyes and the deaf ears. That was supposed to be the servant's job, Israel's job. But they found themselves blind and deaf to God's ears. And so the Lord gave them up. And the the exile was proof that they had not done their job. It was evidence that they had failed. So jumping now to Isaiah 43. So that's, that's still in the background here as we move to Isaiah 43. And a little bit later... In, in this chapter, we see that God reaffirms this calling. He re-ups, right? So beginning in verse 8, he says, Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, It's true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So Israel was God's servant whom he chose for the purpose of knowing him, of believing him, of understanding that he is the one true God, and then to give testimony to that fact to other people, to the other nations, that he is the one true God. But instead, they worshipped these blind idols, these deaf idols that these other nations were worshipping, and they they found themselves blind and deaf. I want to ask, isn't that our problem as well? We all rebel against God, not just everyone in this room, but all humanity, right? We rebel against God. We, we all should see and hear who God is and what his, he's doing, even through creation, right? That's Romans 1, but, but we don't. And so because of that, every single one of us experiences our, our own kind of exile, consequences for sin, broken relationships, broken bodies, and worst of all, if we don't turn to Jesus, if we don't repent, eternal condemnation. That's our exile. And even for us as as Christians, for people in this room who are God's people, don't we still see that there's a disconnect with what we should be loving, with what we should put our affections on, and with what we actually do worship? It's interesting. I've actually noticed lately that there's, um, there's been a bit of a flip in media in the way that, that media is starting to portray the human condition. There's still the typical plot line out there of a fairly positive outlook on at least the main character, right? They don't need wholesale redemption for sin. That's not their big issue. At most, they've got a difficult circumstance they have to overcome. Maybe some minor adjustments to their character, but at the end of the day, they can find everything they need in themselves, right? Just by sheer grit, they've got it. And if, and if there's anyone bad, it's, it's that person, and you know exactly who they are, right? Because they're dressed and look like a bad person. Okay, it's very, very clear. So that, that still exists. But how do you reconcile that picture of humanity with the picture we saw this week of a man driving his SUV into a holiday parade? 
What do we do with that? And, and I think that's what we're wrestling with as a, as a society, as a humanity. What do we do with that? We're, we're wanting answers because there should be answers, right? And so, so we try to come up with something. We say, well, maybe he's the exception. Maybe he's just one of those bad guys. Or maybe um, he simply had a mental illness. Or, or maybe he just had a particular issue with that particular parade or those particular people. And, and maybe in, in certain circumstances, any of those could be true. But the problem is, this gets harder to maintain as a narrative about the human condition when we're on a 24-7 news cycle and we're made more aware of this kind of thing happening all over, all the time. So, I think that's why I've started to notice a bit of a shift in the way we're being portrayed. Consider, in the past couple of decades, how many popular movies, how many popular TV shows feature a a main character that's actually highly flawed and may even have questionable morals. You're kind of made to look at him and go, who is the good guy in this? Who is the bad guy in this? But the the creators of the show want to draw you in so that you even kind of root for them, even when they're doing things that you're like, ooh, I'm not sure about that. What are they doing right there? What are they doing? Well, it's it's almost like the creators are, are finally acknowledging, yeah, we're messed up. (laughs) we're messed up. But they don't know what to do with that. They they don't have hope or they don't see a need for hope and so they relativize it instead. They say, well, maybe it's not that bad. Or even if it is that bad, well, you're doing the same thing. So how could you say that? Right, so we, we, we cope by relativizing the problem when we're staring it in the face. One interesting um category of, of these types of movies that have come out. It's, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been a, a push towards focusing on the villain. Even in, you know, like fairy tales, right? This is, this is not something that's been common, to my knowledge, throughout human history. There's been a focus on the villain, but in most cases, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to like the villain, right? They're, they're, they're spinning it so that we're empathizing with the villain. And that the creators are even seeking to level the playing field a little bit by both maybe relativizing just how bad they actually are, pointing to some things that might have happened in their past that might have been the reason for why they are this way, and then on the other side, showing the dark side of some of the so-called good characters so that it just makes you question a little bit, is this person that good? It's like we're all supposed to say when we watch these movies, I messed up, you're messed up, let's just make the most of it. But is that, is that really it? Is that the solution? When faced with the reality of evil and God's not in the equation, what do we do? We either deny or minimize evil, at least in us, right? We're good and it's all over there. Or what do we do? We relativize evil. We say, is anyone really good at all? How could we possibly know that? When we deny or minimize evil, we say, I don't need salvation. And when we relativize evil, we deny the possibility of salvation. And, and in all of these person, me-centered solutions, there is no actual, real, lasting hope outside of ourselves. But again, let me ask you, do those solutions work when a man drives his SUV into a parade? What in the world do we do with that? We can't deny it. It's right here. We can't relativize it. It is that bad. And if we're honest, we're that bad. 
can anyone save us? We needed to go into this pit for a little while because that's what makes Isaiah 43 so good. Can we all just take a deep breath because now we're gonna dive into the real stuff, okay? Isaiah 43, verse one. But now, but now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Who can save us? Isaiah makes it very clear we we can't. That's not the answer. But God can. God can. That's the point of Isaiah 43. Israel could not wriggle away from the truth. He wouldn't let them. They couldn't save themselves. But God speaks directly into that despair. And he says, you, Israel, I formed you. I made you. I made a covenant with you. I've called you by name. Fear not. I have redeemed you. Right? He says, I'm not going to abandon you. You may have everything to fear. And their exile was fearful. But you have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. And then in verse 11, he goes even further. He says, I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no savior, no savior. So God is not only the one who would save them. He's the only one who could save them, right? He's the the solution, that one solution to the absolutely impossible problem. And here's what's so amazing. Guys, hear this. Israel's failure didn't change who God was. So we had to sit there for a bit, right, in Isaiah 42, to recognize that we're not the solution. But, but even that failure didn't change who God was because he came up in Isaiah 43 and he said what he said. So hear this. Your failure doesn't change who God is and doesn't change how faithful he is to his promises. And so we're going to cling to some of those today. And then if, if you read the rest of Isaiah 43, what he does is he, he, God paints a, a picture of how he's going to save his people, specifically from Babylon. That was their situation. He reminds them of the Exodus. That's what he keeps pointing back to. There's a lot of Exodus language that often happens in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament because God, God accomplished the Exodus and then he points back to it because that was God's greatest saving work really ever until the cross. Right? That's, that's when God showed how mighty and strong and powerful he is. And so there's all this Exodus language in Isaiah 43 because what he's showing them is, listen, if I did that, come on. Babylon, that's not gonna be a big deal. And so they can trust. They can trust. Not only because he said he'll do it, but because he already showed in the past that he was able to do it. So now, that's Israel. What about us? What about us? And, and I wanna draw your attention to something that I found that, that I think is pretty cool. Does, does verse one remind you of anything in the New Testament? Anything in the New Testament? If you would turn with me to Ephesians 2, one through six. Ephesians 2, one through six. Let me read it for us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, we know this, right? But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The first half of this passage begs the same question that we're asking today. Who in the world can save us? Who can save us? And and it's very clear in Ephesians, right? We, We can't. We're not the answer. We're dead. We're children of wrath. But God, but God, even when we're dead, he saved us. At that point when we were dead, he saved us. And here's the key, he made us alive together with Christ. That's how God does it. Here's another one. Let's look at another place in the New Testament, Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. So again, while we were sinners, at the moment we were sinners, that's when Christ died for us. Our situation was completely and totally hopeless, but God. Turning back to Isaiah 43, what do you notice in verse one? But now, thus says the Lord. In many ways, Isaiah 43 reads a little bit like a, a but God kind of passage for the Old Testament. There's a good reason why people often talk about Isaiah being the fifth gospel, right? And I know if you guys have been here for a while, Joe Bart would probably be very proud right now. Maybe get a few laughs out of that. So Isaiah, think of this. Isaiah 43 is an Old Testament but God passage. It's, it's previewing the gospel of how Jesus would step in and accomplish the solution to our absolutely impossible situation. And this is why we now worship Jesus. This is why God alone deserves all of the glory for being the only one who can save. And he saves through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Christian, let me speak to you, okay? You have been through a new kind of exodus. You have been delivered from slavery and exile. So how in the world can you look at anything else for salvation? How could we go back to the idols of Egypt, the idols of our former life? Why in the world would we do that? Let's commit ourselves for another week to turn to the only God who can save. Only God who can save. So let me ask you, can your performance in academics, at your job, in sports. Can that save you? No, but God can. Can security, financial security, relational security, making sure you feel part of something, can that save you? No, but God can. Can the next thing that you're gunning for, just getting to this spot in life, when you get there, can that Can that save you? No. But God can. 
trying to be informed and organized, right? And, and just keeping everything under control so you don't have anything to worry about. Can that save you? No, thank you. But God can. Can even deliverance from your truly difficult circumstance. Can that save you? No. But God can. And maybe you're not a Christian. Let me ask you this. Can you save yourself? Do you think maybe you don't need to be saved? Maybe you're not that bad. You do. You do. And God can. And so I just want to encourage you to trust in Jesus today. And then join in all of us, with all of us, in getting to experience all the blessings that he promises for his people. Because that is where we're just going to bask in. We're just going to sunbathe in the rest of this passage. Okay? Now that we've established that we can't save ourselves, but God can, Isaiah 43 opens up an amazing array of blessings that God offers to his people that he alone saves. So let's work through verses 1 through 7 in particular, because that's where a lot of them are housed. And let's just, just focus on how sweetly God speaks to his people, right? The people in exile, you know your heart, and God speaks so sweetly to them. Verse 1, but now thus says the Lord, he who formed you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Remember, God's audience is in exile, right? That's, that's when they're meant to receive this at least, Isaiah speaking into the future to these people. They've been taken from their homes. They've been humiliated. They literally don't belong to themselves, right? They're, they're slaves in another country. They've even had to lose so many aspects of their identity, maybe having to uh, lose their language, their culture. These things start to die out over time. Their family structures. And, and if we see, look at, at the book of Daniel, some of them even had to lose their names, you know, what, what are we at that point? But God promises to be with them, even in the midst of that. Here's what he says. He says, guys, there is water, but you won't drown. And there is fire. That fire is real, but you won't burn. You have everything to fear, but at the same time, you have Nothing to fear. That's what God says to them. Also, something that was pointed out to me um, in looking through this passage by a commentator, his name's J. Alec Motier, the, the very fire that God is delivering his people from, so the, the fire that he says won't burn them, that's actually God's fire too. Okay, so going back to Isaiah 42, verse 25. It says, so he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire, him being Israel. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up. 
It's a fire that burns. Here's the thing. God had sent them into the fire of exile, but, but it's that same fire that he promises to keep his people from. This, this should give us an amazing amount of hope, right? Because the fire that you might be going through, that's God's. And the deliverance is God's. It's all God's. So he can handle it, right? He can handle it because he's the only savior. Let's, let's keep moving in verse three. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you because you are precious in my sight, in my eyes. And honored, and I love you. I give men in, in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. So a uh, little geography here when God is mentioning Egypt and Cush and Seba. These are all areas around Egypt, okay? And remember, Egypt, that's the exodus. He's reminding Israel of the exodus again. That's what he's doing. He's saying, because you are precious, because you are honored by me, because I love you, I will do whatever I need to do to get you back, even exchanging you for others. And, And in the exodus, you had the Egyptians whom God gave a chance to, but they plugged their ears. They said, no, 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 I don't want to listen. And so he's, he gave them up, right? You have the firstborn of some of those same people that God gave up so that he could rescue his people. Let's move on to verse five. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west, I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Again, God speaks to his people and he reminds them, do not fear, do not fear. Even though your circumstances seem dire, he says, I'm gonna gather you. But to them, that must have seemed crazy. They were a scattered people. And and I mean scattered. It would be like if you took a piece of paper outside on a windy day and you ripped it up into a million pieces and threw it in the air. There's no way all those pieces are coming back together again in one nice piece of paper. But God says he hasn't lost any of them. None of those pieces of paper, none of his children, he hasn't lost any of them. No matter how far he seems, he knows them intimately because they were made by him and made for him, for his purposes. And so he's gonna get every last one, every last one. Remember that if you have a relative that doesn't know the Lord, if they're his, he's gonna get every last one, okay? So at this point, again, we see that's how this relates to Israel, but how do we translate the Old Testament to the new, right? What do we do as God's people now, the church? That, that gets a little challenging. Let's try to connect the dots a little bit for this passage, okay? At this point, we need to revisit the servants. The servant is really the key here. So remember, Israel was supposed to be God's servant. That was the plan, but they failed miserably. And as Pastor Mark explained last week in Isaiah 42, as we go through Isaiah, we we start to get a picture painted for us that this servant, actually God's gonna fulfill that through one person, 
singular person. And, and also, this servant is going to be capable of doing things that Israel would not be able to do, like forgiving sins and so on. Okay? So, now we know that the servant is Jesus. We know that the servant is Jesus, and we're going to see that more as we go through the rest of Isaiah. But for the um, sake of assumption today, we're, we're just we're going to say Jesus is the servant. So if Jesus is the servant, and the servant was supposed to embody what Israel was supposed to be, then, then we can say that Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. He did everything that Israel was supposed to do, and he did it perfectly. And this is cool. You recall, they were supposed to, what? They were supposed to heal the blind, open blind eyes, and deaf ears, but they were blind and deaf, and what did Jesus come to do? open blind eyes and deaf ears, okay? So Jesus is the true Israel. Here's step two. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ, in Christ. Now, what does that mean? Let's go back to our passage from Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, the second half there, four through six. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Where? In Christ Jesus. This is saying we get the good things we get being raised with Christ in the heavenly places by virtue of us being in Christ. In Christ. And so if you are in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus, you get the blessings for his obedience, right? You're right there with him now. It is too good to be true. It's not too good to be true. It feels too good to be true, right? So, connecting the dots for Isaiah 43, God promised these things right here to his servants. Jesus is the servants, the true servants, and we're in Christ, okay? So the things that God promises to his servant right here, we, we get to take for ourselves. We do. And, and I get how we might be queasy about sometimes doing this with Old Testament prophecy because there are ditches on both sides. There are. We have to be careful here. One ditch is that it can be tempting to open up the Old Testament and turn every you into me, right? Anything that the Old Testament might say to anybody, you know, behold, I'm doing a new thing, the likes of which you've never been seen, you're never seen. Well, that's for me. And then you read Habakkuk and you're like, whoa, okay. Maybe I don't want that. So that's one ditch. You want to be careful. But, but on the other hand, there's another ditch. And that can be being so tentative to read that much into the Old Testament besides general truths about God that, that we can sell ourselves short with what God might be saying to us. And, and this is also fair because we do want to read the scripture in its context first. But now we've done that, right? We understand what Isaiah 43 was saying to Israel. But now we've connected some dots and we see how this relates to us because we are in Christ, the servant, the true servant. And so here's what we get to do. We get to look at this and we get to say, that's for me. This Old Testament, Isaiah 43, this is Christian scripture. So if that's true, I want to ask you some questions. Are you passing through fires? Are you walking through waters? 
Are you like where the Myers were? Real fires, real waters. Are you facing real loss? Do you see the culture changing around you and it makes you scared? Here's what God says. Fear not. Fear not. The waters, they're real. The fires, they're real. But God is in control of the waters and the fires, they're his waters. They're his fires. And he has said to you, if you are his, he says, you're mine. I'm keeping you. I formed you. I made you for my glory. And I'm never going to let go. Or maybe, are you worried that God sees you as the least of all of his people? Right? Not just in a humble way, but in the sort of way that makes you wonder, is God even going to let me into the new heavens and new earth at all? And if I get in, is he just going to make me sit up in the nosebleed seats while all the good Christians get to sit down here? Is that something that you worry about? Well, let me say this to you. According to Isaiah 43, you are precious. You're cherished. You're loved by God. You're not second rate if you are a Christian. Church, if you're in Christ, the only Savior, then these promises are true for you. And so don't hesitate to claim them. Don't hesitate to read them this week and go, wow, God is so good. So on that note, let's leave today fully realizing we don't deserve a seat at the table to be raised with Christ in the heavenlies. We get that, right? We get that. But God is the the perfect, the greater solution even to our impossible problem. So we can trust in him this week. We can trust in him and his promises. Okay. Would you pray with me and thank God for these promises? God, we are so humbled by how little we can do to save ourselves. It's fitting that I've had a cold all week when I'm speaking on Isaiah 43 because it has to be you. It has to be you. But Lord, we're so thankful that you step in, you have stepped in through Jesus and you're gonna keep stepping in in our lives to make us look more like Jesus and we can rejoice in that wholeheartedly without any fear and we can claim these promises. So help us, Lord, if we're facing fire, if we're facing water, to walk boldly through those knowing that you are with us. We love you so much, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen.